Hi, this is Robert Cunningham, pastor of Preaching and Vision at Tate's Creek Presbyterian Church. We want to thank you for listening to this resource, and we hope and pray it will be a blessing to you. One quick word, though, before you listen. While we are honored to be a resource for you, we do want you to know that an online sermon is no substitute for congregational life. It's a good supplement, but what you need more than anything else is membership and involvement in a local church. If you are not a member of TCPC, I want you to know that listening to your pastor is far more valuable than listening to this. If you are a member of TCPC, I want you to know that joining us in worship on Sunday is far more valuable than listening online. So to everyone, we are encouraged that you have sought us out, but much more encouraging would be for you to seek out a local church community. That said, thanks for listening, and may God now bless you as you do. I invite you to look at Galatians chapter 2. It's found on page 7 of your order of worship, if you would like to look there. I'll be reading verses 17 through 21, which is the end of Galatians 2. Now, let's give our hearts and our minds to the reading of God's holy word. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners... Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. The word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask that the Lord would bless the preaching of his word. So Father, as we turn again this week uh, to your scriptures as part of worship, uh, Lord, we have the great hope and expectation that you will communicate your truth to us. Father, I pray this morning, would you revive our hearts afresh today in the sure fact that Jesus is alive inside of his people, inside of us. Lord, because this is true, I pray that you would give us strength, that you would give us perseverance. Uh, Father, do this, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, In all the years, TCPC has gone to Mexico uh, to serve alongside the churches there in the Yucatan Peninsula. Several of y'all have been there, I'm sure. I'm looking at people who I've been there with. Uh, One of my favorite parts of the trip uh, is typically the first day there that we get to just be the tourist. And we visit the ancient Mayan ruins uh, at Chichen Itza. Uh, Even if you've never been down there as part of our mission trip, chances are you've either been there yourself or you've seen pictures as uh, this is one of the 12 wonders of the ancient world. Uh, The Chichen Itza Pyramid is really the high point of the whole area. Uh, It's famous for it has four sets of stairs. Uh, You've seen this before. It reaches up to the top of the temple. It's nearly 80 feet in the air. Each side of the temple has 91 steps, uh, then including the top step, that equals 365 steps, one for every day of the year. 
and then twice a year for the fall and the spring equinox, a shadow falls perfectly down the steps in the shape of a serpent. And then as the sun goes down, the snake moves along the staircase. Uh, Chuck Workman, you've climbed to the top of this. But the temple was constructed sometime about a thousand years ago. And it's massive. And the Mayans had absolutely no mechanical tools, no computers. And somehow they figured out how to build this big, massive piece of rock to fit alongside with the sun. I've seen this thing probably a dozen times over the years. I have my picture with all of my kids in front of it. But every single year I'm there, I just can't hold it in anymore. And I simply have to ask, how in the world did they build this thing? I mean, really, how did they do it? It's huge. With no technology, how are they able to physically move these stones and line it up in such a way? I don't get it. Well, the fact is, I've heard an explanation every single year of how people think they've done it. And the fact is, I still don't have any idea how it was done. But here's what I do know. There it is. You just have to enjoy the fact that there's a mystery involved, that something that's before you that is too massive to be true is actually right there. So we look at our passage this morning, I want us to think in terms of that there are times that we just have to enjoy the mystery and accept the wonder that is before us, even if we cannot fully explain it. Galatians 2.20 is one of my all-time favorite passages. Uh, I learned this passage when I was in college and memorized it, and I've always enjoyed it, loved it then, loved it now. But what we're going to see this morning is that there is a beautiful mystery that I truly do not have the ability to explain, and that we can only ask that the Lord would reveal it to our hearts afresh this morning. Here is the mystery. How can... Selfish, self-centered, self-righteous people like you and me, how can we become people who love God and love the ways of God? It's impossible. We can't make ourselves do it. It's a mystery, but it can actually happen. All right, so let's look back at our text. I remind you that Galatians chapter 2, this section, Paul has been talking about how the gospel has affected him and how he has been called into ministry. We have seen that his intent is for the Galatians to recognize that they did not need to perform in order to impress the Lord, uh, nor do they need to uh, perform in order to impress anyone else, because Jesus' work on the cross achieved all of our righteousness. All they, and thus all we, need to know is for our faith to be strengthened is to find our faith in the person of Christ. Again, today he introduces us to the supernatural reality of how we actually go about growing in our faith. It's the reality of the supernatural fact that Jesus is alive inside of us. So here's my proposition for us this morning. Is that we will not truly be alive until we first embrace our death. Now we're going to see this morning two parts of this. First, embrace our death in Christ. And then secondly, embrace our new life in Christ. And as we do that, our faith will be made stronger as we grow. We're going to see our old life is gone, it's dead, and our new life is alive and freeing. Okay, first, embrace your death in Christ. 
Look back at verses 18 through 20. Paul's language here is a bit confusing. Uh, I have read through and studied a lot this week. But remember that the overall theme of this letter, he's arguing to convince the listeners, convince the readers that Jesus' death accomplished everything that they needed. So he gives this hypothetical scenario that if Christ became a servant of sin, it's simply part of his argument to persuade us to see the reality that, of course, that could never happen. Thus, to return to the Old Testament system of keeping the law based on our own righteousness would be akin to tearing down something that was rightly torn down. It would be as if we're going to rebuild it. And not only would that not make logical sense, it would be replacing Jesus' perfect work with our imperfect work. So what he's saying is, this is both silly and it's sinful. No, rather you move forward by trusting Christ and trusting him alone. But in verse 19, Paul's point becomes increasingly clear and a little bit even more confusing. He says this, For through the law, I died to the law. Hang with me. This is crucial for our understanding and for us to experience the freedom that we have in Christ. We're going to see in the coming weeks, chapters 3 and 4, starting with Sam Taft preaching for us next week, we're going to learn more about the Old Testament system and, and the way in which salvation was found in the Old Testament. Ultimately, it points us to Christ, of course. But for today, simply recognize this, that everything in the Old Testament highlighted the holiness of God, God's perfection. That he is distinct from us. He's different from us. And that the reality is all mankind have never lived up to his perfection, his holiness. We could never perform enough good stuff, nor could we ever perform them well enough to meet God's standard. So all through the Old Testament, there's a theme of a king who is coming who will do that for us. And of course, that's what Jesus did on the cross. But here's something that we tend to forget about. We've been on the other side of the cross for so long, the other side of grace for so long, that we have a tendency to forget there actually was and is a consequence for our unrighteousness. And what we see in Scripture is that the consequence is death. The penalty that lawbreakers had and have is that we die. We are criminals in the courts of God, and death has been the theme from Genesis chapter 3 forward. So what Paul is saying here, that when sin came into the world, and then when the law came with Moses, all that we have ever known is that something is not right. It's not right in our hearts, it's not right in our minds, it's not right in our souls. Because we are not designed to live in such a way that there's death in our hearts. We're designed to live with life. The Old Testament law gives categories for our guilt and recognizes the punishment. But our souls, our bodies, give the subjective reality that things just aren't the way they're supposed to be. Now, this is true if you're a religious person or if you're a total pagan. Uh, For the pagan amongst us, we're guilty because because we have not kept God's laws. We haven't even tried. For the religious amongst us, we try to keep God's laws, but we're not able to. In either case, the consequence is the same. In Paul's personal life, he was both. He was a Pharisee and he tried to keep the law, but he couldn't. He was also a murderer and he cared less about the Lord, so he was guilty. In either case, he needed a Savior. 
In either case, he recognized when I try or when I don't try, something in my life is wrong. There's death in my soul because I'm looking for a happiness. I'm looking for life and I haven't found it. When I do membership with the children of the church, when they come to take their profession of faith, uh, the first passage I look at, they they typically think I'm going to tell them that they're sinners. And I I wait until lesson two before I do that. But we always start with Genesis chapter one. And that is that we are made in the image of God. And what I want them to see, and I need to be reminded of myself, is that we are not designed in our hearts or in our bodies to be sinners. God didn't make us to be sinners and to die. God made us in his image so that we would enjoy living in harmony with him. Of all that it means to be made in God's image, it means that we're made to enjoy him, to do what he does, to like what he likes, to love what he loves, to reject what he rejects, to live in harmony with our creator. Then I always ask the kids, does that sound like your life? And they always laugh, say, no, not exactly. And I say, well, there's a reason. Come back next week and we're going to talk about how everything went wrong. But you see, when sin came into the world, our bodies, our souls were conflicted. Where we know something is supposed to be right and true, and yet there's sin that makes it wrong. Now notice verse 20. And let this mystery begin to intensify. First half of the verse, Paul says this. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Do you see what was crucified with Christ? Scripture mentions several things that hung on the cross of Jesus. Four of them to be exact. The first, of course, is Jesus' body. The second, there was an announcement that was put above him that he was the king of the Jews. The third we see in Colossians chapter 2 that it was the penalty for our sin. But number four is mentioned right here. Do you see what was nailed to the cross? It was you and me. I've been crucified with Christ. Let the mystery of those words sink deeply into your soul. The crucifixion of Jesus is not just a historical or theological fact. Of course it's that. But it's the beginning of our testimony. Again, we're we're on holy ground this morning as we consider this. And I've prayed this week for the Holy Spirit to, to be the one who does the teaching. Of course Jesus died for the punishment of our sin. So that when we put our faith in Christ who died for us, the result of that is that his crucifixion is now our crucifixion. Paul is saying that when we put our faith in Christ, our attachment is so great to him that it includes our very punishment for the sin that we had committed. You see, it was finished then. Our debt was paid. Our former way of life is gone. We are alive physically, but our past is dead. Our attempt to be righteous in our own effort is no more. Our sin against each other is forgiven. It's all gone. Our old way of life is gone. We have been to the cross. This past year, 
uh, in our family, we had two very significant funerals uh, that affected us. Uh, My dad died last June. Uh, And then earlier this month, uh, Lisa's aunt, uh, Aunt Myra, some of you all knew her, was kind of like a second mother uh, to Lisa and a third grandmother to our children. Uh, I was asked to preach both of those funerals. You know what was by far the most profound, most emotional part of both of those for me? It it wasn't when I got the news that they had passed away. Uh, It was not the funeral itself. It wasn't even the burial. Those were all profound. But what really got me emotionally, it was seeing and reading the obituary. It was the weight of that moment was so powerful because there were names and dates. And it just felt so official. There is the names, the birth date, the date of death. And that moment is powerful. So church, here's what I want you to see this morning. When you look at the cross and all that it means and all that is true, please see, that is your old self's obituary. Your old self is dead. It is gone. When you put your faith in him, your old scarred, sinned against, mean, unloving, uncaring, unloved, selfish, self-righteous, self-centered, controlling, manipulative, compulsive, hate-filled life is over. It's gone. The cross means your old way of life is over. It officially died. Your effort to please God with your actions died. Now, our assurance of pardon this morning Another one of my favorite passages from 2 Corinthians 5. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. See, Paul's point to the Galatians is this. Why on earth would you want to return to a system that only led you toward death? Paul's point is saying is the cross is the only thing that will bring you life. Why would you want to return to anything else? My point to us this morning is simply this. Why on earth would you want to make sense of any part of this life apart from the cross? The cross is our identity. We see life through the lens of the cross. Our old way of life is now gone. And that is good news because our old way of life was not good. It did not produce life. So the application this morning, embrace the cross. This is where life is found. All that your restless heart craves will not be found by the means and measures of this earth. If you care less about God this morning, or if you're trying to impress God this morning, admit that neither of those approaches get you anywhere. No, let the cross Look at the cross and take your delight there. I am dead to that way of life. It's gone. Now, there is another side to the coin. That is our death. But now notice there's more to the passage. Look at the second half of Galatians chapter 2 verse 20. See where our life is found. We've seen what is gone, but now see your new life in Christ. It is no longer I who live... But Christ, who lives 
and me. Please don't miss that. Earlier in chapter 2, we saw that Paul discussed that we are to live, quote, in step with the gospel. Verse 14. Now that theme continues as we see how we can actually live in step with him. And that is the doctrine we'll see more of in chapter 5. It is the work of the Holy Spirit. But let this truth be previewed here. When we are converted and we put our faith into Christ, his gift to us is that he puts his Holy Spirit inside of us. Jesus now lives inside of the soul of every person who has ever put their faith in Christ. You may have heard that in Sunday school your entire life, but please let the mystery fall on you afresh this morning. God himself, Jesus Christ, lives inside of our mortal bodies. In our flesh, Jesus is alive. He's alive. You should hear me say that and you should say, that's impossible. That's ridiculous. That's what you should say. But you know it's not true. John 14, Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come to you because I live, you will live. You will know that I am in the Father, you are in me, and I am in you. Theologians refer to this as our union with Christ, and it is the greatness of our salvation. We're not just spared the penalty of our sin, but God wants us so much, he now comes to live inside of us. Friends, if you know Christ, you're alive. You're truly alive. You're alive in such a way that you are free to enjoy your maker. Okay, I hope this illustration is not too crazy. It's not Rambo. Uh, However, in the Harry Potter series, J.K. Rowling touches on theological themes whether she intended to or not. If you remember, if you're not a muggle and you've read the books, the night that Harry uh, died, his parents died rather, Voldemort unintentionally had part of himself transfer into baby Harry, leaving a mark on him. What happened to Harry for the rest of his life? Throughout Harry's days, he had thoughts of Voldemort. He could hear his voice. He couldn't get him out of his head. He understood his ways. There was an attachment to Voldemort. All right, now, forget that I ever compared the Holy Spirit to Voldemort. (laughs) However, see this. When God converted our hearts... He very lovingly, very intentionally put himself inside of us so that over time his ways become our ways. He marked us with his baptism and now his thoughts become our thoughts. Our minds are transformed into his mind. His love becomes our love. His strength becomes our strength. His passion, our passion. His joy, our joy. His word is alive inside of us. We desire to reject sin. We desire to love our neighbors as ourselves. We desire to be generous. All the things that we could never do, now we can do because we're alive. You see, we have a whole new way of living. It's by faith in the one who is alive inside of us. 
Our physical lives are connected to our spiritual lives in such a way that our spiritual life now defines our very essence. Is it a mystery? Yes, it is a mystery. But you cannot deny it. When you know Jesus, you know that your heart is different. So now, understand this. Everything that's true of Jesus is now real for us. His story is our story. His death is our death. His life is our life. John Calvin said it this way. Everything Jesus has to offer is now for us. Do you see how special you are? Here's the point. In Jesus' death, we now get our life. Real life. Life that you could have never gotten on your own. So let me simply ask you this question. Are you falling in love with the ways of God? Is reading the Bible for you a precious gift and not just a duty? You see, you're free now to enjoy living in step with the one who created life. You're free to reject sin. You're free to see the shallowness of a life apart from your maker. You're free to delight in the Ten Commandments. The punishment of those is gone. Now you're actually free to enjoy the way of life the Lord has for us. He is the author of life. His ways are the path of life. God desires life for you to enjoy. All right, I'll close with this as we prepare to come to the Lord's table this morning. If you and I are friends, there's a chance you may invite me over to your home one day. But let's be honest, after two or three hours, you'll probably be ready for me to leave. You see, Jesus comes to unworthy people like you and me. and He comes to live. He comes to stay. He walks with us throughout all seasons of our life. He promises to never leave. He loves you more than you love him. He purchased you with his very life. He's your master and his ways are aligned with your creator. For goodness sakes, don't turn away from him. Run to him. Trust him today more than ever. As we come to the table of mystery, may our faith be strong today. Jesus is alive in you. Amen? Amen. Let me pray and ask the Lord to prepare us now. Oh, Father, the mystery of faith is too great, but yet it's too simple, and you have designed it as such. We thank you, Jesus, that you are real, that you are alive, that you are conforming us, that you love us, that you're not going to leave us. Oh, Father, make us people who love your ways. Prepare us now to feast with you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.